0: This episode is brought to you by our wonderful patrons and a great big thank you to our newest patron, Sally D. If you enjoy the coffee and cocktails podcast, make sure to like subscribe and become a patron starting at one pound per month. By supporting the show, you get access to ad free episodes, bonus content, panels, workshops, and much more. Just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 38th episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month, we are starting our new series called Giving Voice to the Voiceless. And to kick off what I anticipate will be a very eventful group of discussions, I thought we'd start off with anthropologist Pragati Gupta, who will be talking with us today about how the caste system is manifested through India's higher education system. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, I, it's uh, an honor to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself.
1: Raghati, would you like to start? I am having, since I don't drink, I'm having an iced latte with- You do um, drink,
0: you're drinking liquids. You're Drinking <laughs> liquids, come on. There's more to life, come on. I'm having an iced latte, that's it. <laughs> Sounds delicious, iced latte works for me. A um, little bit of a sidebar story: when I was living in Italy years ago, um, I was thinking in English, and I I just needed a coffee just to like keep going. So I'm at this cafe, and the guy at the cafe behind the counter says, "What do you want?" And I say to him in Italian, "I'd like a latte." And he looks at me and he goes, "Latte." And I said, "Yes." And he goes just latte and I'm like yes yes of course I just want a latte and he's like do you want it hot or cold I'm like why is this guy asking me all of these questions I just want a latte and I said hot like how else would you serve a latte so I sit down I start pulling out my papers and the guy comes over to me with the tiniest little shot glass of milk hot milk and goes here's your latte and I go Oh, I'm such an idiot. And I literally just walked up and said, I'd like, I'd like some hot milk. <laughs> I realized, no, when you're in Italy, you have to say a caffè latte, a coffee with milk. And anyway, so every time I hear, oh, I'm just having a nice latte. I think of that hot little shot glass of milk that that, that man gave me very confused. Italian bartender gave me. So anyway,
1: anyway, moving on. Oh. Uh, I did not know about this. I've never been to Italy or I mm. have never heard, like, I, I don't know much about the European culture, but mm. have, on Instagram, this particular thing is so popular. Like people will make so many Instagram reels about uh, latte and how how not to ask for latte in, in, <laughs> in yeah, Italy. Yeah,
0: they've got very strict rules. Uh, one of the other rules that, uh, you know, I reached a point where I thought, you know what, I'm foreign. So like, just leave me alone. They have a very strict rule about how you cannot order a coffee with milk after 12. I've heard some places not even after 11 in the morning. I'm like, time out. I don't like strictly black coffee. I like a little bit of milk. But if you, God forbid, order a cappuccino or some latte-based coffee after 12, there's this idea that it'll make your tummy sick. And I'm like, no, it's not how it works. But they will give you the weirdest looks. And I thought, you know what? I'm foreign. Just let me have what I want. Let me have my hot shot glass of milk. Just leave me alone. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to let it go. It's like chai tea, you know, whereas yeah. chai just means chai just means tea. So you're going to have a TT. Tea tea. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, tell us, um, so before we get into the you know ins and outs of the work you're doing, which is super interesting, and I would imagine a lot of the listeners may not be aware of what's going on, so I thought we'd just sort of dial back and start from the beginning, if that's okay with you, and then sort of work our way up. Um, so if you could, could you tell us what initially got you interested in the topic that we're going to talk about today?
1: Um, I think initially I began writing about cast from a familial perspective, perspective, kinship perspective, and gender perspective. So, like, um, in my household, uh, like, since inter-caste marriages are a a very uh, new phenomena, like, at least in India, because caste is perpetuated a lot by marriage. So, um, what really got me into was how... uh, One of my sister-in-laws who's upper caste has married into a family that is, you know, compared to her status, pretty lower caste. But she has no idea of how our caste has manifested in like, because a lot of my family's caste identity has been mystified over the years. So I grew up very ignorant about my own caste identity. I had no understanding of my caste identity solely because caste uh works not just you know in a vacuum it works in conjunction with gender class just like any form of social stratification but um so what got me interested was when i started my undergrad degree i started to think a lot more critically about my own position because that was the first time i my caste identity was questioned. And I was made to think, oh, where do I belong in this debate? And, you know, where do I come from? And what should be my position? Am I upper caste? Am I lower caste? Oh, am I what? And like that sense of ignorance um, was forcefully taken away, you know, when I started my higher education. So initially, I started thinking about my own caste identity. and You know, eventually, uh, little by little, I started uh, deriving these questions that later formulated into, you know, questions, research questions. But uh, my orientation and my interest in caste is very much personal and uh, very much of what I have observed and experienced outside of the fieldwork that I've done. That's really interesting. I think, I think you'd find, at least I know from my
0: own personal experience, I think a lot of the research that we do, whether that you're a journalist, you're an anthropologist, sociologist, or just a, a person in general being interested in something, I think a lot of it really stems down to our own experiences and then starting to see those experiences through a different lens, maybe because somebody's held a mirror, mirror to us or treated us in a different way. So I think that's, Really interesting, and then I'd like to dive in a bit more about that if we could. Um, so there's a lot of questions I'd like to ask, but based on the sort of stuff that you've sort of told me, can you can you give us an idea, especially for those who aren't familiar with the caste system in India, how it's based? Because I know some of the things, the material that you sent me, which will be available in the show notes on our website after after we post this, um, is that caste isn't just based on um, Maybe religious stratifications. And one of the things you talked about, which I thought was really fascinating, is that it's actually quite multi-layered, and it's not binary in the sense of, oh, you're from your Brahmin community, therefore you are X. Um, could you tell us how is caste negotiated, and how how
1: is it made sense of, and
0: and how is it stratified?
1: Basically, there are two. Uh... So, in anthropology, like when we were first taught caste, we first taught about the Varna system. So, the Varna system is a four fold system. It has four broad categories. If you can imagine a pyramid, at the top of the pyramid would be the Brahmins, and then would come the Kshatriyas, then would come the uh, Vaishyas, and then the Shudras, and then the Atishudras, the, the, the untouchables or the Harijans. So, um, what happens is these 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 broad categories are often misleading because this is not where where and how caste functions because amidst these categories are various subcategories and because of the colonial um, effect and um, the sen- the way of taking census there is the angle of status claim like so there are castes who would say you know. I'm not Vaishya. I am Kshatriya because, you know, I practice so and so and so because a lot of caste is also based on purification and pollution. So like, and your occupation that, you know, Brahmins are supposed to be the ones who read the Vedas or the ones who are educated and the ones who are intellectuals. Um, and uh, what happens then is then the other, the the uh, besides the twice born others are um the the untouchables or uh, very many castes the marginalized castes are very it's a comparative understanding so in comparison to which caste am i marginalized and i am above which caste is the basis of discrimination so these are the three four there are few tenets so like it's your occupation it's your um uh you know it's your ability to practice purity and pollution in, mm. in comparison to other castes. It's endogamy in the sense you marry within your own subcaste, not even your own broader category of castes, but your subcaste. Mm. So for example, my own caste status. I um come from the broader category of what you would call Marwadi. Like this is um, a group of castes that belong to the Rajasthan region of India. But amidst these, this particular um, broader category, uh, there, is, there are various subcastes like Agarwal, Khandelwal, and then comes Mahavar, Jain. There are so many you know uh, subcastes. And, and a lot of... A lot of this is very comparative. So uh, compared to the Agarwal's, we would be considered lower caste, but uh, compared to the Mahars, we would be considered, compared to them, we are above them. So a lot of caste is practiced on the basis of comparative discrimination. So Mahavars would be discriminated against by the Agarwal's and the Khandelwal's, but um, the Mahavars will discriminate against the mohors to maintain a sense of status in the society. Mm. Okay. So how does caste compare to class
0: then? If you if if there's a Westerner listening, um, which I would imagine there'd be quite a few, um, how could you ex- how does it compare, I guess? So um the example I keep thinking of, um, when I moved to the UK, one of the things I was quite aware of was this idea of class. Mm-hmm. And you know, somebody would say, when somebody would say, I'm middle class. In my head, it was very different than how it was portrayed and I realized that middle class is actually um they're doing like quite well for themselves financially or at least giving off the impression that they're doing quite well financially. So, um in terms of of stratifications and and that sort of thing, how would you define
1: class as compared to
0: caste or are they one and the same?
1: I think that in India is very complex because what happens is that class status or like an elevation in the class status does not do away with caste discrimination very necessarily. So even if you are, um, although like what happens is that if you come from a lower caste background, you've had late access to education and you've had late access to a variety of occupations that became available to you very later on. But since you don't have access to education, you don't have access to that modern abstract language that comes along with education, right? Okay, so so,
0: so like English, for example.
1: Yeah, for, for example, English. So like, um, I mean, personally, uh, my grandmother uh, is... Is somebody who's not had, you know, like she's not had formal education at all. She's never she's never gone to school. She was married off at the age of twelve or fourteen, and uh, she had uh, her first child by the age of fifteen. So, uh, I my grandmother has not received any formal education. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, I I have had friends whose grand like whose grandmothers have had comparatively better education than my grandmother so my grandmother did not have access to that because of both her class and caste status and mm.
0: yeah so so would you say if we were to look at, at language as a marker of caste and class um why is english a marker of both of those items? And how does this affect marginalized communities or communities that may be perceived by some caste systems as being marginalized?
1: So, um, I mean, I, I use a lot of uh, Gopal Guru's work in my research and Gopal Guru talks about this in a, at, at a great length as to how English is the mark, like English is a marker of a frightening code of conduct. Because, like a lot of lower caste people and people who come from marginalized castes, are first generation learners, because their parents uh, and communities were subject to occupations that were dehumanizing and that were and they were completely ostracized from the society. Could, could you give some example of what those occupations would look like? Uh, it would be. Um, you know, a lot, many times domestic helpers would come okay. from lower caste backgrounds and a lot of dehumanizing, um, you know, uh, cleaning work would, would, uh, would be accorded, accorded to the so-called untouchable castes or lower caste backgrounds. And a lot of lower caste People would not have access to um, formal education. So, so even after independence, they would not be able to um, achieve or go for jobs, even though they have the freedom to. Because now, now that we are democracy and caste discrimination has been quote unquote abolished by the government, um, it its residues still exist. Mm. Mm. Okay. In the form of like i mean who has first access uh to anthropology it was first the white man and then the brahmin man who had access to um you know uh, the field in india for especially when it comes to sociology and anthropology. um, If you would see a lot of academia is dominated by the twice born or the, or the upper caste.
0: So what is, sorry, I know I'm asking a lot of questions, but what does it mean to be twice born?
1: It means um, your family owns a lot of land and your family owns a lot of uh, your family had first access to colonial education or first access to English education, which is now very important uh, to do any sort of thing, because now we live in a globalized world and English is the language thereof. And uh, even in schools, all our courses, like unlike other countries where they're taught in their native language, uh, our courses are taught in English. Like I have had, Twelve years of high school education uh, in complete English, and mm. even my undergraduate and graduate degrees were in English. It's so, yeah, I mean, even though at at home I spoke Hindi and Odia because I came from Odisha, but um, my uh, education was mostly in mostly and completely in English. So. Uh, Again, access to English is not something everybody can have because there are private schools and there are public schools. Mm-hmm. And at times public schools do not have access to um, good English. And that is why they, they are like a lot of students who come from marginalized backgrounds cannot uh go to the top universities.
0: Interesting. Interesting, because they don't have that access to English, correct? Yeah.
1: Yeah, because all the exams
0: are held in English mostly. Okay. So if we can kind of take that bit of background information, which is super crucial to understanding the work that you do. um, One of the things that, you know, when we were talking about previously is you said that um, higher education, and you mentioned this briefly just now, was normally reserved for the upper class, for the Brahmin community. And that there were attempts made by the government to allow more marginalized communities to have access to higher education, especially top tier higher educational facilities in India, of which, as you mentioned, all the courses were going to be taught in English. And for those from marginalized communities, English, they would be the first ones in their families, A, to have access to this higher education, and B, let alone that, you would also have access to it in English. Um, In the process of the policies that were put in place by the government, which if you could give us a brief synopsis of that in a second, that would be great. Uh, One of the items that was developed by the government was what you referred to as the quote unquote reservation policy in higher education. If you could tell us a bit about what that means and the policies that were put in place, um, A, that would be very helpful, but also if you could tell us how it relates to um, a sort of negative response by the Brahmin community in the form of what they called reverse discrimination. Um, If you could tell us a bit about, you know, the responses to that policy as well, that would be really helpful for us.
1: I think I work mostly with this perception of reverse discrimination. So So basically what happens if because I'm gonna be very simplistic in, in mm. this explanation, So what happens is that in India, we have a lot of entrance exams and cut off policy. So when I was, uh, I completed my 12th grade exams um, and I was about to enter colleges, I gave a, a nationwide board exam, uh, the result of which um, was used for um, my admission into Delhi University. Okay, so like if I scored a 95% and the college cutoff is 95%, um, I get in, especially for my course. So like it's course-wise. So if I, I went for sociology honors, so the course cutoff was 95%, for example. So that that is then divided into three categories, general, SC, like many categories, general, SC, ST, OBC, and then there's for... Persons with disabilities, and there's army quota,
0: and and I think it's it might be helpful for us because I think a lot of listeners aren't going to know about any of this. Yeah. Um, if you could just take a couple of these acronyms and explain what they mean and why they're there, that would also be useful.
1: Yeah. So uh, a lot. So marginalized castes, like people who belong to marginalized castes, um, are categorized by the government in three categories the scheduled caste the scheduled tribe and the other backward classes so what happens is you get you have to go and tell uh, you have to go to a local uh, you know government uh, you know tehsildar is what we call it and you know claim your status and say that you know i belong to so and so community and i am regarded as i as somebody who belongs to the scheduled caste so scheduled castes are the castes that that were completely dehumanized the dalits and um and and you know they they go they have to, you have to go and claim your status and get uh get the certificate and that's so you get some relaxation on the entrance exam marks or the um or the cutoffs that you have to go like you you need for uh, entry into colleges like delhi uh, Colleges in Delhi University, if I'm being clear. So, scheduled castes are uh, Dalits and the ones that are completely dehumanized and totally ostracized from the society. And scheduled tribes would be the indigenous people or the Adivasis, uh, who were also um, discriminated against in India. And then there is the other backward classes. These are, again, um, castes that have been Marginalized and have been deprived of uh, access to resources. So okay. these are the th- three categories that the government has classified the marginalized castes into.
0: Okay, okay, that's super helpful. And within that, um, you said that the sort of they have different markers or benchmarkers that they have to create, and it's so that they have this basically this reservation policy if i'm un- if i'm to understand it correctly sort of gives a little bit more wiggle room in a roundabout sort of way for those who come from marginalized classes to have access to um high ranking universities is that
1: correct or just any higher
0: higher educational no, facility
1: it is, it is available for every higher education you know not okay. just like every higher education institution you can claim your a reservation and okay. you know, get some relaxation with the 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 you know entrance percentage like the the cutoff or the entrance examination scores.
0: And I think I think you use a really interesting word, this term relaxation, right? You know, I use the term wiggle room. Um, but either way, there is a bit of a cushion, right? Yeah. and within that, it seems like members, some members, I don't want to broadcast assume everybody, but some members of the Brahmin community feel that there is an aspect of reverse discrimination slash discrimination against themselves because they feel like those of other classes are getting in far more easily than they are. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, and they use a specific term called merit like they would use tell us t- about that i think that that's really
0: interesting this so, this twisting of words yeah yeah
1: so so like um when i was reading up and i was doing my literature review for my master's dissertation which I is came- excellently written by the way
0: very very well written anyway continue
1: uh, i was reading the work of satish Deshpande. so he talked about this joke so like he talks about when um in in the ninth like i think when the second mandal commission was set up in india and reservations were accorded to the other backward classes that the government had classified a new category for the other backward classes there was this joke uh, where um a bunch of uh, it was a very popular joke then he talks about he talks about how um if uh, we had to spend uh, send um, you know Uh, people into space. In India, we would classify with like, you know, two SCs, two STs and two OBCs or something like that. And there would be just one astronaut. Okay, so, and this was this popularized joke during that point in time. And Satish Deshpande talks about the verbatim of this joke, as to like how the the caste, like the caste status of the so-called astronaut, in this joke, is clearly unclear. In the sense, um, people would say that they are being discriminated upon while they're trying to uh, say that caste does not exist by highlighting somebody, else, the marginalized caste status, and trying to mystify their own. So He says that um, you know if if you if you are reading this joke or you're hearing this joke, you know that the astronaut in question here is an upper caste person, mm-hmm. and uh, and this is such a, a nuanced understanding of of how the popular perception works. In the sense, um, what happened with the creation of these categories was that although reservation is the right policy and it should be there because um caste based discrimination manifests materially it must manifests in a lack of reso- access to resources and lack of access to education and social mobility in general but but the fact of how these um how upper castes in in the country have used this particular um you know, this particular categorization to their benefit by perpetuating this sense of castelessness amongst themselves and a sense of, you know, hyper-visibilization of the caste of who they discriminate against to say that, oh, I, you should not get reservations because it should be based on pure talent but if you don't have access to education how for hundreds and thousands of years how would you ever know if you're talented or not and uh, talent is a very socio political uh, term and mm-hmm. it does not uh, you know uh, manufacture itself in vacuum if if your definition of talent is is a room full of white men or a room full of, um, you know, uh, upper caste men, um, then that particular talent or the merits that you're talking about is not uh, operating up, you know, in a vacuum from the society. Mm.
0: So I guess, I guess from what the takeaway is that talent is subjective, right? And it can be contingent on the way you look, um, the environment that you come from. So to say, well, you need to have talent. The impression I'm getting from what you're telling me is, well, how do you, how do you quantify that? And what does that look like? Right. Um, if we could kind of, now that we've got sort of an idea of this reservation policy and, um, this idea of reverse discrimination that the Brahmin community or some members feel is, is happening. Um, Could you tell us, as somebody from a marginalized community, having gone through higher education, um, when did you become aware that people from certain castes are being treated differently in the classroom?
1: My first encounter with caste was like when, um, so I was talking to my mother and I was like, you know, uh very ignorantly so. I was like, oh, you know, I wish I could also, you know, take the benefit of, you know, uh being, you know, what what if I could also get these relaxations? She's like, you know, you can, because we come from the OBC community, but you don't realize what you will have to go through if you go get that certificate and you go write uh that you're not from the general category, and you're from the OBC category. When you go to Delhi University, you'll know how you are going to be treated.
0: Yeah, and OBC being other backwards community, right? Yeah, That's
1: one of the labels. Yeah. yeah. So we are like I wouldn't call myself um, the most marginalized caste, but yeah, comparatively in in our uh, local hierarchy, we are we are a low, we are considered lower caste, comparatively lower caste. Although we have a few castes beneath uh, our particular subcast, uh, so my mom was my mom was like, "You're not to discuss your caste status when you go to Delhi with anybody," because I, we were. I was born and raised in Odisha, and my family has North Indian origins. So nobody in Odisha really understands, and our caste is a little mystified back at home but uh, my mom is like my mom is from Delhi she's North Indian by birth so she's like you are not to discuss your caste status with anybody or you're not going to discuss your caste with anybody and I was like why she's like you can't you're going to be discriminated against if you do and she was right I had yeah I had friends in my living space I lived in a in a PG or like a paying guest situation where you, uh, you know, it was like a hostel sort of situation, but it was a private hostel, not the, not the college. It was not affiliated with the college. So I had a few friends who who went to the same college as I did. And they had so much, um, casteism instilled in them. And, um, they would um, be like, I'm not going to marry a guy who's not a Brahmin. Uh, You know, uh, that's going to make my bloodline impure. And, um... was going to say, it's got
0: some Harry Potter
1: Voldemort vibes going on there.
0: (laughs) Anyway, go on.
1: It's it's so scary when you're in that position that, you know, you realize that if your friends get to know your caste status or where you come from, they're not going to, you know... uh, you know they're not gonna treat you the same way anymore, and um, they were like, "It's gonna make my bloodline impure." And when I went to the classroom, I all my professors would talk about reservations. Okay, and uh, I, I had a classmate who just stood up and said, uh, oh, I don't know why they have, uh, why why do they have." This reservation policy, people who don't even deserve to be in colleges get in. And um, she she made this these so many blatant and like rather I would say not physically, but you know, violent in um I, I don't know how it felt the way she spoke about reservations, felt like she was trying to violate somebody. And she she I am uh, I'm not even gonna you know um say what they said necessarily yeah I mean that's fair she she stood up and she was like um (laughs) I have so and so friend and she's from so and so community but she went to the same school as I did why is she getting reservations and I'm like the fact that you still know her cast and You know, you're highlighting her cast in this particular classroom is why she deserves to get that kind of, you know, uh, reservations. Because it's to make up for a damage that can never be made up for.
0: So was this particular person upset that they felt like their friend who came from a marginalized community wasn't given the same opportunities as other people?
1: Oh, she was mad that she was given the same opportunity. She was. That she was getting wow. reservations. That you know, like her friend could get into a better college than her because uh, she was availing the reservation policy. And Sounds my, like her friend needs to
0: find new friends.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and my <laughs> and my mom uh, was like, "I told you that you know, if you if you uh, availed your reservations, you would have to live. You would have to constantly hide. It's like, uh, so I." On paper, I I belong to the general category. So, so like, the upper castes have been manifested into the general while the others are considered, you know, quote-unquote, their their identities are highlighted. So the upper castes, with all their benefits, early access and resources and, you know, economic and social capital, uh, get to hide behind the general category while Um, somebody who belongs to the marginalized caste has to go and get a certificate and has to highlight their caste identity and then get discriminated against, even if you make to these elite institutions.
0: It sounds almost like you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, you know? And if you do get this reservation that you just have to sort of hide it away in your pocket. Yeah. and just be glad that you have it and then just don't say anything and just keep working.
1: So Gaurav Pathania talks about this particular damned if you do and damned if you don't um when he so he conducted uh, interviews with uh, students in higher education institutions I think he conducted about 200 interviews and mm. um there were students who used to hide uh, when they were going to pay the fees because upper caste students were going to be mad uh if they saw the the if that they are getting some off on their fees or like some sort of relaxation on the on the college fee and uh upper caste students would be like uh low caste students have low graduation rates because they are dumb oh wow and, and we graduate better because uh we have higher graduation rates because we're smart. So we need to abolish um, reservations because and these are these are, you know, the words they use. Like, you know. Yeah. And... That's a
0: lot. That's that's a lot.
1: Yeah, and, and and this is so much mental distress that is caused because of it.
0: Hmm, which sort of like leads us into this this other element that you'd mentioned, because um, we talk, you talk about you know the effects on mental health, and it can be. I mean, I can only imagine the sort of stress. You know, you finally have this opportunity to go to this amazing school, and now you have to hide your identity. You have to hide where your family comes from. Um, you can't even be prideful of where your family comes from because what if your air quote friends find out? Um, so how does caste-based discrimination inequality? we've already talked about how it's made evident in the classroom, but how does it affect students on a more personal level, especially with regards to their mental health?
1: Um, so uh, when I was talking to one of my interlocutors, who was a professor in, um, a a very uh, esteemed public, you know, institution, and we were talking and, um, they tell me that, you know, whenever like, uh, whenever the question of uh, you know reservations come come like you know, are insinuated in my class, and I and I do so very um, you know intentionally uh, to get to know my students and uh, their viewpoints, and uh, so like a lot many students will stand up and they'll say they'll be totally anti reservationist in their approach and they would make these like you know um violent damnations and you know stand up and give their you know opinion very vehemently and you know be very stubborn about how you know reservations are not useful or whatever and uh there would be a bunch of students who come from these reserved so called reserved categories and they would literally have tears in their eyes And they would not speak up no matter how bright they are and no no matter how, um, you know, how smart they are. And I have witnessed this firsthand because like when the girl in my classroom spoke up, there were, nobody countered her. Everybody else was silent. So was I. And, you know, and you were like, and you know, when I got to know Somebody who was like ignorant about her own caste for most of her early life, and I got to know that you know, in this, in one sense, I was also silent, and I was sitting, and I was, I had these thoughts in my mind, but I would not speak up, and I would not talk about how caste manifests or why reservations are necessary. I just sat through it, mm-hmm. and, and and keeping that silence can be very distressing. Mm-hmm. And, and and at times, so what really also struck me was that the professors, most of our professors, especially in social sciences, are upper caste themselves. And for them to insinuate these questions in the classroom in order to educate the upper caste students uh, at the cost of the, the distress that is caused to the ones that come from marginalized communities also at some point does feel um unfair mm. and, and in need of serious sensitization. Well, and it also
0: seems quite self-perpetuating.
1: yeah, you know,
0: and and how do you navigate a system where you have professors who are coming to the table with their own, misconceived perceptions and then you have a certain percentage of the students that are also castus, as you put it um you know how, how it's almost like how how can a reservation policy be beneficial if they're coming into an environment where they are still constantly reminded of the fact that they're not welcome Um, I don't necessarily expect there to be an answer to this final question, but I think it's something that is worth having at least a, a discussion about. Do you think discrimination in the higher educational classroom and sector in India can be overcome, if at all? And if yes, how?
1: I mean, I wouldn't say that something. I, I I cannot have an answer to the overcoming part, but I do feel like we can have. A system or like education where people are more sensitized about their own caste and like especially in academia. Mm. Because in academia and in the mental health pedagogy, where um in, in, in the Indian in the Indian psychological therapeutic setting, which I was a part of too, and I still am. I go to therapy and I've been in therapy for a long time. I was in therapy for a year, then I had discontinued and I was in, I'm in therapy again. And um, a lot, many times, your social identity and what causes certain anxieties is not understood because there is no language to understand this caste-based discrimination. Mm. Like I talk about this very awkward relationship that therapists have with, you know, social identity. Like uh, when I asked them, have you ever dealt with somebody who told you that you know they had very hostile comments coming on to them within the classroom because of reservations and uh, none of them had an answer to how to combat that situation and mm. and that means that the, the 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 psychiatric or the psychological research does not take into account caste based discrimination as a source of distress mm. and that is the problem that I highlight. So, at one stage, that there, there is caste system perpetuating itself through experience, through the experiential within the classroom and the everyday life, and then there is um, no recourse to deal with that distress.
0: Do you think it's almost just become accepted,
1: and that's why? I think it it is this lack of um it is India's obsession with objectivity at times the theoretical and and the the public and the private uh is too separated in the Indian mindset so I if I were to tell my friends or, or try some and try to talk to my school friends about what I what I research with and you know try, and tell them you know you know in real life you are upper caste and you know my my research has real life re- repercussions, and there are some you know standards and ethics that you know and values that I hold, and you know those are non-negotiables for me. So if I tell them that that you know you're being casteist, they would be like, why are being why are you being so theoretical with me? Why are you trying to bring politics into our friendship? Not realizing that you know. Our friendship itself is political, and like everything we go through is political and politics. And your views on how marginalized communities are to be treated are, are, are the basis of your values and ethos. And and if and if we can't really uh, position ourselves in our research, or like India is very, I feel like Indian academia is very. Um, offended by reflexivity interesting okay they're very offended by um positionality they're very so I had this interview where I was asked uh, not just an interview there were many times when even in my under during my undergrad I had friends in the same classroom question autoethnography they were like is autoethnography a valid method of research and, um, and the same happened in this recent interview. I was asked, don't you think that you're gonna get biased by your own position?
0: But our own position is in everything that we do.
1: That's exactly. So for me to theorize it and be mm-hmm. radical about where I come from and mm-hmm. how I see things and be open to criticism based on my own positionality, um is something that india vehem- like indian academia vehemently rejects at times yeah. so so a lot of research that i do does not really sit well with uh academics in india would you
0: say that the response has been different in the uk um
1: i would say the response has been different in the uk because um a lot many Dalit scholars, uh, you know, lower caste scholars, they end up coming to, uh, to sensitize, you know, they end up because they don't get fundings or the support they need there for the research. So they, they go and, you know, they come out. So like, I think in that sense, uh, Western academia is more sensitive to the caste question because of the people who are, have to resort to coming to, to you know, uh, the
0: UK because they're not accepted of, in their home country.
1: Yeah, so like a lot of uh, you know, the research that God of Patania does and my supervisor, like, and a lot of their research, a lot of caste research, is uh, being done outside of India and in inst- where people from India have institutional affi- affiliations outside to do these projects. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think that is a really good way to sort of pause it because you are going to be giving a bonus talk, which will be available um, on our patron for our patron followers. And you are going to be talking about how casteism is um, basically evident amongst the diaspora in the UK. Is that correct? So I'm really, really looking forward to that. Um, so I'm going to take a little pause um, and say that's it from us at the moment at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. Uh, Prakati, thank you so much for just giving us sort of like a little taster of what to expect. this bonus episode I know is just gonna be a kicker. Um, if you'd like more information on today's topic, um, it will be available on our website in the show notes. And if you'd like to check out Percati's, um bonus talk, where she'll be talking about how caste system is evident in the UK and how it manifests itself and she's going to be taking that, this talk, just that, that extra step forward, um, then consider becoming a patron starting at one pound per month. It's support from our patrons that really helps to keep the show going, but becoming a patron, you get access to extra bonus content, patron only interviews, panels, workshops, and much more to join. Just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast. Otherwise that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.